for this day, Lord. We're so glad to be here. We're so glad to worship together. We thank you for the body of Christ that you have saved us. You sent Emmanuel. You sent one born of a virgin. One who could cleanse us of our sins. One who could redeem us and pull us together and unite us in in an aspect that the world could never understand. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time of year. We thank you for a time to celebrate, sing such great truth in our songs about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the word of God as we break it forth and we begin to understand it, that it pierces our hearts. It causes us to be more like your son. And Lord, it is the truth. We stand on a truth. The world doesn't know truth. They constantly change what they think is truth. But we believe the word of God. So we pray that you would minister to us through the word. Finally, Father, we remember those who couldn't be here today. There are some who are sick in home, some even dealing with viruses or whatever it may be. Some have had procedures. Lord, we long for them to be here with us. And we know so many of them want to be here, Lord, but we pray that you would encourage them. Many are watching now, Lord. I pray they would be able to hear the word of God well and, and they'd be ministered by those truths. Lord, thank you for our missionaries that are around the world preaching the same truth that we preach here. Lord, please bless their endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 7 is the text we will be in. I had Pastor Jerry read that text because it's the correlating passage. It's the New Testament fulfillment of Isaiah 7. But I want to dig into Isaiah 7. It is not an easy passage um, when you first dive into it. But as we go along, we'll understand there is a beautiful message. And there are not one sign in Isaiah 7. There are two, and we'll discover that. But as we begin to unpack the incarnation of Christ, it is a difficult thing, isn't it? To think about that God steps out of heaven. He dresses himself in humanity. That's what we call the incarnation. Our Lord and Savior dresses himself in flesh. History contains nothing that even remotely approaches the wonders of God in flesh. God would come and live among his people. He would be like his brethren in order to live a sinless life and die. Well, many of the songs we sing, the writers try to capture that, don't they? Here, just a few moments ago, we sang a song, Hark the Herald Angel sings. It was written by Charles Wesley, and it was written in 1739. When that hymn came out, Charles was trying to express the, the doctrine of the incarnation. I don't know if you caught that second verse, but let me read that to you. It says, Christ by heaven, excuse me, by highest heaven adored. Christ by highest heaven adored. What does that mean? Well, that's the Father, that's the angels, that's the Spirit of God. There is nothing higher than that. That is the highest heaven. God adored Christ. God adored him, and Charles was trying to get that across. He said, Christ the everlasting Lord. So that begins to help you understand that Christ is not just somehow begotten here on earth, and that was the beginning of him. He's eternal. He's eternal. Only his flesh, only his humanity began then. He has always existed. Then he said this, Late in time, behold him come. Well, this is the long expected one. Isaiah 7 is going to give us this sign of one who's coming, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem us. And now they've seen the light. He's come. 
late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin womb. Boy, that's the work of God. No one can do that. And then this statement just, boy, just grasped me when I sing it. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. You want to see God? Look to Jesus. He is he is God, and he is the exact representation, Hebrews 1 says. When you've seen him, he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The word came and we behold, we beheld him, full of grace and truth. There's nobody described like that except God. And so Wesley was trying to help us understand the deity, and he said, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. God was pleased to dwell with us. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Well, Wesley reminds us that this prophecy so long ago has found its fulfillment in, first, in the first two chapters of Luke when Jesus comes. This is a beautiful mystery revealed in glory and majesty in a scene in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And it's what causes Christians to sing. It's what causes us to rejoice. It's what causes us to preach. It causes our Christmas to be different than the world's. Do you understand that? It is this message. It is the message that God would come, be born of a virgin, born under the law, so he might redeem us and adopt us to be his children. This is our message. Now, I love it when Pastor Jerry was reading that Mary says, how can this be? And that's what we're going to discover today. How can this be? I love her answer. It's so honest and pure. How can this be? How can this be? The Bible reminds us it can be because God does it. And God does it. And we're going to look at that clearly this morning. Well, this message of salvation, of course, started way back in the garden. Man had rejected God, had believed Satan's lies over God's truths. But in Genesis 3.15, God promised he would send one. One from the seed of man who would crush the head of, of the serpent. And we know they believed it because by chapter 4, Adam and Eve have their firstborn child. His name was Cain. And the Bible says she held in her arms and said, See, God has given me a man-child. Is a kind of the Hebrew thought there. It is, it is possible that she thought that first child, maybe that first child will undo all the sin that they had created in their unbelief. And of course, we know Cain was anything but the Messiah. Um, but yet there's a longing. There's a longing for the one who can crush the head of the serpent. And by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 7, we find a nation in utter sinful chaos. The world's in chaos. There's superpowers. There's lies. There's deceits. There's bribing. There's all kinds of things going on in Isaiah 7. And there's very few people listening to the word of God. But this is a spectacular text. And it captures a prophetic announcement of the virgin birth of Christ in such a spectacular way. One old commentary that I was looking at this week said it this way, speaking of Isaiah 7. It says, of measureless importance to the universe, to the world, to every individual of human family is the prophecy to which we now come. On the fulfillment of this prophecy, all Christianity rests as the building rests on a foundation. So here as we begin to look at these pages, we begin to understand that Christ has to come into the world. He has to come into the world in such a way that he's untouched by sin. And he has to, be, he has to remain untouched by sin. 
and Christmas and Easter and all of life is in vain if he does not come into this life separate than the sin of man. And so we hold to the virgin birth, the virgin conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is such an important part of what we believe. I think what also strikes me when I began to study this passage is just how difficult life was. The prophecy in Isaiah is set in a very sinful context. The state of the nation and the rest of the world is completely rejection of the true and living God. And time's flying by in this first part of Isaiah. From Isaiah chapter 6, where you start that, and of course Isaiah has a vision of heaven and God and all the things that are going on there. We have the, uh, the death of King Uzziah. And, 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 and then from there, this 20 or 25 years seems to pass by. And, and the 16-year-old Jotham, one of the kings, and the sons of Uzziah, the king of Judah, he's even passed over in this text. You have to see this in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and so forth, what's happening there. But in this text, we come to a King Ahaz. He's the son of Jotham. And he's a wicked man. He's so entrenched in idolatry that he'll offer his own son to Moloch and as a burnt sacrifice. This is where the nation was. I think sometimes we think we live in bad times, don't we? You ain't seen nothing till you see Isaiah 7. This was a godless, pagan time. The nation had turned its back on God. But there is no black of darkness there can't, that cannot be quenched by the brilliance of the glorious Christ. And that's what's going to break through in this dark time. There's going to be a sign given, a prophecy given that, that is a bright light. And it is a hope of our eternal existence. So I think this is a message to such good news for us in 2020. Well, let's see what we can learn from Isaiah 7 so that we can become more serious and joyous worshipers this Christmas season. Let's look at four thoughts this morning. Number one, a message of hope while godless rulers reign. A message of hope while godless rulers reign. Look up with me in the first two verses. Chapter 7 of Isaiah 1 and 2. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and Risen, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but it could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Armenians have camped in Ephraim, that's the Syrians, his heart, now listen to this, his heart, the king's heart, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with wind. Now, in these two verses, you have the historical setting, what's happening in this time when this, this prophecy of the birth of Christ is announced. There's a report here in these first two verses of the ancient powers and, and the political schemes that are going on. You have the ten tribes of, the, of northern Israel. They're called Ephraim here. Um, another name that, that was a strong name that Jacob gave to jo, uh, Joseph as he promised what was going to come. So Ephraim is referring to these ten northern tribes called Israel. They have an ally now. They have left the living God. They have departed from their sisters down in, brothers and sisters down in, in southern Judah, which would be the southern tribes. And they've gone in league with a wicked nation, Syria, to fight against their own family. It's really civil war. And they're using uh, another nation to help them do this. Things are bad. 
in the nation of Israel. Now, both Syria and the northern tribes have surrounded Jerusalem. You see this in chapter, two, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. And these armies, though, they've come against this, this great city. The, the nation of the southern tribes have fled into Jerusalem, and there they're hiding, protected behind that wall. We're going to see they have water flowing in there, and they're, they're actually okay right there, but, the, the, but there's war outside their walls. But the Bible tells us, notice at the end of verse 1, that they're unable to overcome it. Now, verse 2 tells us about the unbelieving part of King Ahaz in the people of Judah. The Bible says his heart and the people's heart, right? So that's, that's the, the southern tribes, that's the people of Judah, that's the people in Jerusalem. Their hearts shook like the trees in a hurricane. They were extremely afraid. Now, you have to understand what's happening. Um, in the ancient world, war was not shoot people from planes that you never see. It's bad. It's slice open pregnant women. It's run swords through people. It's burning and shooting and beheading and just, I mean, war back then was terrible. And the Bible says that Ahaz, this king who has turned his back on God, and many of the people who have turned their back on God, they shook like the trees shook in a windstorm. Now, so what will frighten King Ahaz do? That's a good question. What's this king going to do? Is he going to turn to God? Will he repent? Will he return the nation to God and cry out and say, Oh God, we've sinned against you. Would you have grace and mercy on us? Well, he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he does just the contrary. He rejects God. There are two correlating passages to really understand where this lands. You find them in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 29. If you want to read this afternoon of what Israel was doing there, particularly King Ahaz, I invite you to read those chapters. They're very disturbing. And there the Bible tells us that King Ahaz, instead of gathering um, everybody to pray and to repent, he gathers gold and silver from the temple and he sends it to the king of Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria, who was the superpower of the day, to bribe them to attack the Syria's capital city and pull off the attack of them. And instead of trusting God, he relies on manipulation. He plays one power against a power. This is what the pagan world does, and this is exactly what King Ahaz does. And when you look at that passage in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles 29 and so forth, it's full of lies, manipulation, war, hatred, deception, fear, you name it. It's all going on during this time. So what does God do? What does God do to a nation, to a group of people who have heard his word? What does he do? He sends a prophet. He speaks to them. Right at the time when Jerusalem is under attack, the king's given away the goods, right? He's, he's bribing superpower. Babies are being murdered and, and burned to, to Moloch. And, and man is worshiping self and the gods of the world. It seems so dark right at that point, And everyone's trembling like trees. God says, I have a word. And he sends a prophet. And he sends prophet Isaiah to speak his message Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jezup, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. 
and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on the account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. Now, this is just pure graciousness of God, isn't it? They deserve the wrath of God like all sinners, ourselves included. But Isaiah brings this words of comfort. He says, look, do not be afraid of these people. He's telling the king and the nation, God has us in control. He, there's nothing to fear. There is no real danger, Isaiah tells them, from God. And notice the almost condescending way God refers to these invading armies. Look at me, with me there in verse um, 4. He calls them two stubs of smoldering firebrands. You go, well, what is that? Well, if you've ever burned anything, burned a field off or burned some, you know, I, I, we used to clear a lot of fields. When it's all done, the fires are out and little stumps just smolder. And you may go around and put them out, but it's not very hard to deal with them. They're just smoldering stumps. They're, they're harmless. They're harmless. And so this was the way God was saying, you know those superpowers, Syria, and, and the northern tribes who think they're something when they've abandoned me, they're just a puff of smoke. They stand no chance against me, I will blow them out. So this is God's way of saying how they cannot destroy Judah. And yet, King Ahaz is shaking like a tree. He then adjoins his allegiance to these wicked superpowers, Assyria, which in turn, they bring an altar back. King Ahaz goes up there, gives this offering of gold to them, brings back Molochs. You'll read this in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 29. Bring back his altar and puts it in the temple. And God has been saying, what are you worried about? I'm going to wipe out your enemies. They're like a puff of smoke to me. See, this is what happened when you're blind to God and you don't listen to his word. You do stupid things. You don't listen to God. And you find yourself in disobedience. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, was saying this will happen. And look what he does in verses 5 through 7. He says, because of Aram with Ephraim, that's the northern tribes, the sons of Remaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, right? That's what they're feeling. And make for ourselves a breach in the wall and set up the son of uh, Talbiel as king in the midst of it. Verse 7, very key verse. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. So here, God gives this clear, indisputable statement that the threat is nothing. Quit worrying about it. Quit trying to gather your silver and gold and trying to bribe another superpower I have this in control. Well, listen, God's word always stands. And it's a reminder that his promises won't fail. I mean, think about God. He, think about his vantage point. He knows all things, past, present, and future. He has all things in control. He sits above the circle of the earth, the Bible says, looking down on the situation. But King Ahaz and his wicked followers know better. And so let's bribe a pagan country to protect us when God himself says, I am there. Well, listen, the word is so true just today in 2020 as it was 700 years before the birth of Christ. This is our God. He, he knows what's going to happen. 
He knows that he has given us our word, his word, so that we would trust him. We would put our faith in his word. And brothers and sisters, yes, things are crazy. Yes, it's difficult. I don't think it's as bad as it was in Isaiah 7. But it's not fun. There, there, there looks like some troubling times coming. But our God says that he will not be conquered, that we will not be destroyed, that he sent his son to die for us, and we have an internal inheritance with him. What do we not believe about that? We find strength in that. And so we must trust the word of God. Now, notice what God's reasons are for such a powerful statement at the end of verse 7 that this should not come to pass. Look at verse 8 and part of verse 9. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. Now within another 20, uh, 65 years, Ephraim will be scattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, this is in the northern tribes, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, that's Pekah, okay? So what God says is, look, these are weak leaders. This King Rezin, he's a weak leader. And God's telling King Ahaz and the nation that he's no threat, and therefore Syria and its capital city should not be should not be a big deal. They're, yes, they were violent, and there's a lot of things that went on, and they heard about the wars, and they heard about the killings that were going on and so forth, but he says, do not worry about them. Then he turns to the northern tribes. This is where King Pekah would have been. He is a godless king ruling in the northern tribes. He says, he is inconsequential figure. You do not worry about him. Now, there's a few figures in public office that you should not worry about. You should not be afraid. God is greater and he has us in his hands. And we trust him. And we live as good, honest citizens the best we can, but our faith is in the Lord, not in people. The Lord is reminding of this. Now, I want to show you one passage before I leave this point. Go to Psalms chapter 2. I want to drive that thought home. God has a plan. He's already executing it. Uh, Dr. Baker last week gave a great example of prophecy as we study the Bible as he sat on his deck and looked at the different hillsides um, looking at each hill and farther and farther and out and the valleys in between them a lot of the scripture prophesies that way we see near completions and then we see far completions that are coming and of course Psalms 2 fills that as well but I want to give this for just a reminder for you because sometimes the world thinks they have it all together right or most of the time they think they have it together they know what's better for us they have to tell us how to live our lives because we're not smart enough right that's that's what the world's doing now right but that's not how God thinks in fact he looks at them in a certain way look at Psalms chapter 1 why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising vain things a lot of vain things going on today the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. That's dangerous. You get a bunch of sinners together and they come up with a council of how to rule people. That's not how we live our lives as Christians. And notice what it's against. Against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Lord Jesus saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You know what that means? People do not want God's word. They don't want restraints. Don't tell me how, what marriage is about. I don't, want to, I don't care what God's view of marriage is. I don't care what God's view of sexuality is. Those are not things. Let's tear away those fetters. We don't want any part of that. You can see that in here in some ways. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> I like that phrase. God's perfect, right? He, he's not sinful in it. 
But remember, he sits on the circle of the earth looking down at people going, we're going to do this. He sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger. Oh, now things are going to change. He'll speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my king. Oh, you think you're running the show here. Oh, my king's coming. This is Jesus Christ. And of course, he came in the virgin birth and prepared a perfect sacrifice for us. But he's coming again. And he said, upon Zion and upon my holy mountain, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. This He's going to take his position now. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I'm going to give it all to you. Because Jesus, you lay down your life for mankind. And when Jesus comes, and this is great hope, when he comes the second time to rule, the Bible says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Well, you take an, off, uh, an iron rod and take on to one of your grandma's vases. No, don't do that, sorry. Um, it's not going to last, right? A little clay pot that was formed and heated in a, in a furnace and you take a, a tire iron to it? Nothing will stand against God. Nothing will stand against the true Messiah as he rules and reigns. And then verse 10, he says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. He's putting a shot across the bow, isn't he? You think you got everything figured out, but you have not calculated God's role in all of this. And he says, Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Isn't that spectacular wordage, isn't it? That's a humble awe of God. Not flippantly singing songs, but thinking about the music and the ligaments that are written there and going, oh God, this is truth. And yet you love me. You're all-powerful, almighty, and yet you're mindful of me, David said. You hung the stars and the moon and you called them by name, and yet you're mindful of me. See, that's singing and expressing in reverence to who God is. Verse 12, do homage to the Son, bend the knee to Him, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. Sometimes I see these things going on in the world and I'm going, man, you're stoking the fire of the Messiah. And He's coming one of these days. And He'll set the record straight. But I love the last phrase. Look at this last phrase in verse 12. I hope you have your Bibles out. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. What a statement. Do you find your refuge in Christ? Or is your refuge in what people think about you? The refuge, I, I spoke with somebody this week about their authority. They were trying to tell me that they, they believe that um, you know, marriage and all kinds of life and all these things should be their way. And I said, well, what's your authority? Well, it's just the way I want. And I said, well, what if I want to kill you? <laughs> Do I have the authority to do that? So I said, see, what Christianity believes is our authority is God's word. We stand on it. So what God's word says, we do. We do. And we find refuge in that. We know that God protects us when we stand in his word. When we do what he tells us, there's great refuge and there's great care in the word of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, know the Bible and believe it and walk with it. Otherwise, disaster awaits in so many ways. Remember, sin's goal is to kill, break, and destroy things. Live in the word of God. Second thought this morning, number two. 
If there is no belief, there will be no relief. If there is no belief, there will be no relief. Now, you see at the end of verse 9, there's a somewhat of a play of Hebraic words here. It's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. It says here, we write it in our English, at least in the NASB here, it says, If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Looking at that, I come up with that little phrase, If there is no belief, there will be no relief. There is great, heavy judgment coming. King Ahaz is blind, right? His sin has blinded him from the plan of God. God is there really speaking through this prophet Isaiah. He's speaking the word of God to him. Isaiah is there, but everything is blurry to the king because he loves his sin. And he cannot hear the words of God. And this is so true today. Sin always blinds you. One of the things as I study scriptures there's areas in my life that I'm not right with God, I have to take time to spend time with him. There's no way to study Isaiah 7 and not be right with God. It's such a difficult passage to try to understand all the things that are going on here. I want to be right with God because even Christians, we can get blurry of the will of God because of sin. Sin is a blinding agent. And so we are to repent of those things. Um, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, he says, keep yourself free from sin. Keep yourself free from sin. And when I study my Old Testament like this, or even the New Testament, when men and women brought up who want to live in sin, what comes with it is blindness. Here's God speaking through Isaiah and, uh, to King Ahaz, and Ahaz can't see a lick. His sin has blinded him. In this text, though, you find some fascinating symbols and actions that speak really loud. Notice in verse 3, the Lord says to Isaiah, take your son, Shear Jazhub, Jazhub with him. And now here's this little boy. This, if you look at this text, I thought, well, what's the, why does he say take his little boy? If you, do the, if you do the math and you start working out to 722 when the northern tribes fall, this little boy could be probably somewhere between 4 and 10. He's a little boy. And God says, take him with you. And when you look at this text in verse 3, he doesn't say anything and he doesn't do anything, but his presence is important. In fact, sheer Jezebel means a, wimp, a, a remnant will return. Now that's interesting. Isaiah has a son with him whose name is prophetic. Now, today, when we think about naming children, we name children all kinds of things, maybe famous people, maybe um, a family name that you're passed down in some way. Maybe you like C's and you get stuck with C's. Somewhere along the line. I guess it was me. But in the ancient days, they didn't name that way. Names were given and selected to, because of the meaning that they had. And so we study the names and often learn well. Let me see if I can give you an example of this. Methuselah is the oldest person who's ever lived according to the Bible. We use that term like, you know, man, you look as old as Methuselah. All right, right? We use that term. It's in the world, right? I wasn't looking at anybody, I promise. Um, it's just a term that we know Methuselah lived a long time. But when we understand the Hebrew name of Methuselah, it means when he dies, it will come. Oh. So that leads us to start to think, well, this is a little bit strange, but let's examine why his name is that way. Well, who's his father? Well, his father's Enoch. 
Enoch was one of two men who never died. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24 says, he was not, for God took him. Some of your Bibles will just say, God took him. Just came along and swooped him up and took him off to heaven. Now, when Enoch is 65 years old, he has Methuselah. And Methuselah's name, again, means when he dies, it will come. Methuselah brings forth Lamech and Noah. And when you think about this, and you do the math of Genesis 5, we find out about the same time Methuselah dies, Noah's ark is ready, and judgment is poured out into the earth. When he dies, it will come. So sometimes, not all the time, as you're doing your exegesis in the Old Testament, particularly here, and you come across a name in this little boy, and his name is there, and you go, why is he there? You should look into it. I'm going to give you some more of that just in a few moments. Now, here, here we see one more piece in this puzzle that we must think about before we move on. Notice in verse 3 that Isaiah is told to take his son to a precise place. Look back with me. Take him and go to the end, notice the end of verse 3, the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, God's word repeatedly loses, uses geographic positions to teach truth. Many believe that Genesis 22, where there where Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac on that altar, is later the same area or even possibly the same mount where Jesus Christ dies on Golgotha. And so some of these places are, are tremendously attached. To, it isn't hard to study Jacob and his vision of the of the Christ coming up and down the ladders and building altars and places. They all represent places that come later on. But isn't this interesting? Here, Isaiah is told, go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool, the highway of the fuller fields. So Isaiah was supposed to stand in this very spot right here into the conduit by the fuller's field, and he was to give this prophecy to King Ahaz. Now, the, prof the prophet was to have no fear. Notice in the verse... He's to have confidence as he speaks that the enemies of Judah are just smoking stumps. They're no threat. And in fact, God in 40 years is going to wipe out Syria. He's going to smash them with the king of Assyria. And the northern tribes are going to be taken captive in 722. And so somewhere in about 40 roughly years from this prophecy of chapter 7. Chapter 6 is about 65. Um, chapter 7 is about 40 years. They're going to be wiped out. Now, remember in chapter 6 that God told Isaiah that his people would listen, but they would not perceive, right? They would be looking, but they would not understand. Jesus uses this passage. If you look back, and I don't have time to go there, but verses 9 or so, they're going to keep looking, but they're not going to perceive. They're going to keep hearing, but they're not going to perceive. They're not going to understand. That's what sin does. But God doesn't, he doesn't uh, just change ways because man doesn't understand. He says, I still want you to go to the end of the conduit, to the upper pool, to the highway of the fuller's field, and I want you to give this cryptic message. And you say, well, why there? Why, why doesn't he go to the palace? Why doesn't he go to the temple? Why, why doesn't he go right in the center of Jerusalem and stand there and say, here's what God says? Well, the Hebrew language is a beautiful language, and it, and it often paints pictures. It's very colorful, and it's description and it uses things that are full of meaning and, and passages paint away. I just want you to think about Israel in that area. It's very dry, very arid. And anytime you come upon water, it's a beautiful place, right? If you live in the desert, if you would lived out with us by the Nevada border and so forth, the water was precious. 
You don't buy a piece of land without a water right. You're a fool. So water is precious. And in those days, the nation of Israel, particularly the nation of Israel, believed that flowing water was a gift and a blessing from God. Now start to see what I'm talking about here. Just as water flows downhill, flows down from this canal, this conduit, the nation believed that that water was precious to them. Now, you have a wall around your city. There's two major powers outside that wall trying to come in and kill every living person and set their own kingdom up in your place. But you got water. That's a big deal. And they saw that water is from God. Now, there's another piece to this. Notice that it comes to the fuller's field. Well, I wasn't too sure about this, so I looked up the word fuller. And it means, in Hebrew, it means soap. Oh, this is a place of cleansing. Now let's start to put some pieces together. Isaiah, I want you to go to this very spot where the blessing flows from God and meets a place of cleansing. Anybody tracking with me? There's a prophecy coming of a one born of a virgin, Emmanuel. This was a chosen place of God to give this prophecy. Ahaz, it's going right over his head because of sin. The nation has no idea, but we understand it, don't we? God says, I want you to go to this place where the blessing of God flows and where the blessing of God comes and meets, there's cleansing there. That's Jesus Christ. And you begin to see this is pushing towards something. And so in God's infinite wisdom and giving this prophecy for the nation of Israel and for all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a place where the blessings of God flow down to men and a place where you can have your sins cleansed. And it's coming through a baby. It's coming through a Messiah placed in the womb of Mary. It isn't hard when we start thinking about this from the New Testament perspective, brothers and sisters. This is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. One sent from above, flowing with a gift of salvation to cleanse sins. Jesus said over and over, he says, my father has sent me. He, he talks about purification all the time. His very first miracle that he does in John is, is change water into what? And what does he use? He uses the pots of of purification, that they tried to purify themselves. He uses those pots to show purifying. He cleanses leopards. He cleanses bleeding women. He tells people, get up, your sins are forgiven. This is the, the great highway of God coming down to earth through Jesus Christ where he cleanses sins. And when I began to understand that, the passage began to come unfold to me. In the middle of the most wicked highway of the world right now, Pagan baby burners worshiping dead gods. Here's God coming and saying, Isaiah, you tell him, you tell him this at this place. Because I have a plan way bigger than what everybody can understand. See, when you believe this message, it comes glorious, doesn't it? Man, Christmas just isn't materialism to us at all. We go, man, that's the time my Lord stepped out of heaven. To save my wretched soul. Oh, don't let, don't let materialism take your Christmas away, brothers and sisters. We're fools. This is a glorious time. We're the ones that need to be cleansed, and God's the cleanser, and he's using his son to do it. Oh, don't turn from that. Third thought, a sign of hope and a sign of judgment. 
a sign of hope, and a sign of judgment. This is a difficult passage when you start to dig into it, but those who reject Jesus as a true Messiah, it gets way difficult. (laughs) And the Lord's going to show us there. Notice that the Lord asks King Ahaz to choose a sign. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol and high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, in other words, God says to Isaiah, he says, this is the sign. I intend to be, have, have a, something just so global in it. So I have a sign, but you ask Ahaz, you ask Ahaz if he wants a sign. I'm prepared to give a sign that is for all the peoples of the earth, for all time. It's a sign so strong that it'll gather the faith of millions. But you ask King Ahaz what he wants. Now notice in verse 11. This is the most self-centered king who acts like he's pious and humble, but he has no interest in the sign of God. He already is planning what he's going to do. He's going to go around God and try to bribe Assyria, and he's going to bring destruction to his northern brothers. He does not believe. In verse 12, God had just invited him to ask of a sign. I mean, if God came to you, he's not going to do that because we have the full Bible now, but say you're in the Old Testament times, and he comes to you and says, give me a sign. What are you going to ask for? Well, look what Ahaz does. Look at this false sense. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. You just burned your baby to Baal. We know who you are. And God knows more importantly. And so here's the, this is the reaction of the people. This, this is a reaction of a person or people who don't need a savior. If God came to me and said, Ask me a sign. What do you want? I would go, save me. (laughs) Because if you don't save me, there isn't all the money in the world, all the prestige that you could have. Nothing would be good enough. You've got to save me. See, proud people go, man, if I had a Jesus and a genie bottle, what would I ask first? See, and you begin to see the heart of Ahaz. Look, we're limited in here, and you have to read those other passages, 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 29, to understand how wicked this man is. And you begin to understand. I'm not guessing at this verse. This isn't me guessing at this. This is hypocritical. And God knows it. And so look, if you've ever done this with somebody, you share the promises of God. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody, often we share the promises of God, right? We don't tell them that the wages of sin is death and then say, yeah, see you later. We say, but... But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And and, and you go, eternal life? Do you know what eternal life is? Well, it sounds like you live forever. Exactly. This is a promise of God to those who believe in him. He gives you eternal life. You ever given that? And they go, well, you know, that sounds good. And you Christians, maybe you need that. I'm okay. I don't. I'm really glad you found your happy place. And, you know, you're good. You know, thanks. Boy, really kind of you to share that with me. And they walk away. That is damning pride. That's exactly what that is. And, and it sounds humble, and it sounds pious, but it's actually a fearful, deadly utterance of pride. Oh, that's, I'm so glad you found religion. I'm so glad you found that. Oh my goodness, someday they'll stand before the Lord, and he will cast them into the everlasting lake of fire. 
See, we don't realize how wicked people hide behind their piousness. See, Ahaz was not stupid. He was not ignorant of Israel's history. He believed in God. He knew, he knew God created the heavens and the earth. He understood all that. But God didn't do things the way he wanted, so he went to his neighbor's gods to try to get his will. See, that's what people do. Oh, I'd believe in Jesus if he would just heal me. I'd believe in Jesus if he'd take me out of debt. See how self-centered that is. That's exactly what Ahaz is doing here. He does not believe God. Look at verse 13 with me. And then he said, this is Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah. Listen, O house of David. It is too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well. In other words, Isaiah answers the king and says, look, it isn't enough that you tire me out, but you're tiring God out with your lies and deception. <laughs> Isaiah, boy, he knew he was standing with God because Ahaz could go off of his head like that. But his confidence is in the Lord and his confidence is in the word of God. And, and look, we, we, we should share the gospel kindly and sensitive to that person, but have confidence in the word of God. And that's what I love about Isaiah. But it's so important. Look at the change here that goes on in verse 14. Before he asked Isaiah, I mean, he asked Ahaz, do you want a sign? Now he turns away from Ahaz because of his response. And he turns to the house of who? David. Now remember, there's a little boy. Anybody remember what his name is? A remnant shall return. He's going to start to tie all this together, isn't he? Notice in verse 14, the you there is now plural. It refers to the house of David. And therefore, the Lord himself will give you the entire house of David a sign. Ahaz, you're going to get another one. We'll get to that in a minute. But I have a sign for the remnant. I have a sign for the remnant. You know, I can imagine Isaiah with his hand on his son's head when he's saying this. Because everybody knew what what his sons Shear Jazab meant. They meant it meant a, they understood it meant a remnant shall return. See, now what God is doing, because Ahaz is so wicked, he's not trusting God, the promise, the sign goes right by Ahaz and it goes to those who will believe. And we get this glorious, monumental verse in verse 14. Look at it with me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, house of David, those in the line of the seed of Christ, those who belong to God's house. He will give a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What an amazing understanding here. The sign is that a young woman, a virgin, will conceive and bear a son and it means his name, great statement. Remember we talked about names or just wasn't like, you know, hey, what do you want to call him? <laughs> Emmanuel sounds good. No, this is, this is a meaning God gave this name. God is going to come and dwell among his believers. He's going to dwell with us. Now, despite wickedness of the kings and the nations, God will have himself a remnant. Boy, it isn't hard to go to Zechariah and Start studying about 10, 11, 12, particularly 12, 10. 10. There it says there's this remnant. 
even if Israel, during the worst of end times, they'll look upon the one whom they'll pierce and believe. See, God will have a remnant. And the remnant is always people who believe. They find the relief. Don't believe, no relief. This is what God is saying in this passage. And the relief is in Emmanuel. Now, a lot to do with this, this word for virgin, right? And, and it's not wrong to translate it a young woman. Some people will argue with you and say, oh, I looked up the Hebrew and it says young woman. I think the Hebrew actually allows that. And the word can even mean a young married woman or it can mean a young unmarried woman. And you go, well, where are you getting at, Scott? Well, that's not a sign. It's not a sign. Look, young women have sons all the time. My daughter-in-law is about ready to give me another grandson. I'm really excited about it. A lot of you women have bore children or raised somebody else's. That's, I mean, that's cool. That's amazing. The birth is an amazing thing. I, you know, like, wow, glad I'm a male. I mean, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? But it's not supernatural. Let me tell you what a sign is. A sign is when a woman who has never known a man has a child. That's supernatural. That's a sign. That's amazing. I mean, I, we jumped for joy when Becky told us that they, her and Colton were going to have a child. It was so cool. I was so excited. But God, by his infinite mercy, has designed man and woman this, that way. You know, Harvard's calling women now, what, what was it? Birthing people. The medical industry, we've got to be careful of the medical industry. A lot of our people work in it, praise God, you're there. But the medical industry is leading us away from truth, birthing people. God said, let them be male and female. I have a unique role for males and I have a unique role for females. And they both will bring me glory in their roles. And I'll tell you what a sign when he says, look, I'll give you a sign. There's a woman who's never known a man and she's going to find herself pregnant. That's a sign. That's hope. And this is what the prophet was saying, that this sign was for the whole house of David. He's coming in the line of David. It's for those who really believe in, in the line of David. They believe in the coming Messiah. It's for them. In the New Testament, we see this start to unfold. The angel appears first to Joseph. Uh, he's in the line of the house of David, uh, Matthew 1 tells us, and he's told not to fear, and he's to take Mary as his wife because what's happening in his supernatural and you can imagine Matthew, um, and Susie Joseph in, in the book of Matthew, as he drifts off to sleep, he's, he's just found out his dear Mary is pregnant. What must have rushed through his mind and, and the hopes and all that he had planned now is, is, is falling apart. He's, he's trying to think of how he can put her away without having her stoned to death or shoved into prostitution or rejected by her family. He's trying to figure that out. He drifts off to sleep and the angel meets him in a vision and a dream and says, don't be afraid. This wasn't your doing or any other human doing. This was God's doing. And old Joseph wakes up and obeys God. And then the scene shifts over in Luke chapter 1, verse 35 and Mary is hearing this spectacular truth that Pastor Jerry read to us there, starting in verse 26 through 38. And, and she can't fathom the truth of what she's saying, what he's saying. He, he, he can't get her, she can't get her mind around it. She knows she's old enough, right? She knows how somebody gets pregnant. 
She knows her own purity. She knows those things. And so she comes out and says, how can this be? I love that phrase. It's so pure and so honest. And she says, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin, she says in verse 34, I think. I'm a virgin. I've not known that. I've been faithful to you, Lord. How can this be? And I love Luke 35 because the angel says, not a problem. (laughs) Not a problem. Because you're the fulfillment of a prophecy 750 years ago where God told the wicked nation that he was going to bring a woman and she was going to be a virgin and she was going to bring forth a son and inside you is what God is going to do. He himself is going to overshadow you. The power of the Most High, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and do something so miraculous that he's going to set the conception inside of you. And Mary says, let it be just as you've said. It was so magical and mystical and yet beautiful and she believed. And the angel says, there's nothing impossible for God. And look, I found so much comfort this week as we sit in a nation that seems to be sliding south that God is still in control. And he's given you and I a sign. It's in the word of God. We're celebrating it this, this, these weeks. We have a son. We have, a, we have the son of God here for us. One who has passed from heaven the Bible says, and come and, and is born sinless and lives sinless so that we could have eternal relationship with him. What a beautiful text. So this virgin birth was indeed assigned to the house of David 750 years later. This is all carried out. And just like Isaiah seven fourteen commanded it, there was a baby born of a virgin. His name was called Emmanuel. He is God with us. And all the beauty and mystery and majesty of Christmas gathers in that name. And when Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, he he was laid in a manger. The angels broke forth in praise and they commanded shepherds to go behold with glad tidings, with great joy in the city of... Are you awake? In the city of... David. There it is. Right along the line with Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And there's one born for you. Now listen to this. A savior. That's what the world doesn't believe. There's a Savior. And he's come through the line of David. He is the Christ, the Lord. And then they close with this saying to the shepherds. They say, this will be a sign for you. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. You cannot look at Isaiah 7, 14 in in Luke chapter 1, verse 35 and not see these things completely connected. It is our great God working out his glorious time. Now, this great sign was a hope for the house of David, but there was another sign given. It was for Ahaz. Look at verse 15 through 16. I've got to finish here. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows, excuse me, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Well, when you first look at this, I think sometimes you look and you think, is this this verse connected to Emmanuel in verse 14? We, We think maybe that's where it's at, but there's no fulfillment. Never do we find Jesus eating curds and wild honey. That's more John the Baptist type stuff, right? 
And so we begin to realize, wait a minute, this is a sign for Ahaz. The land of the two kings that he's not supposed to be in fear of is indeed going to become deserted. It's going to become devastated from war, and there'll be little to eat it but just natural things. Now, the he in the passage, you're trying to figure out who that is. (laughs) I think the he is standing right there. I think it's Isaiah's son. I think he's saying, this one who will be a remnant won't die. But he's going to go through this land as he gets older, and he's going to see the results of when people choose evil versus good. And he's going to go around, and there may be one cow or a couple cattle left, and and maybe some honey, and they're going to try to survive off of that as they go into this land, as they go up to the northern territories of Israel, if they go into Syria that has been wiped out, stripped of all of its good, all its people are dead or in captivity, and they're going to realize, wow, this is what happens when you choose evil. Judgment comes. And he's standing right here. Sheer Jezebel. He's a remnant. And he's going to know because of your wicked deeds, Ahaz, he's going to understand what happens when you choose evil. What an illustration. This little boy grows up to see what happens when you reject the God of all creation. He's going to see, I don't want to follow King Ahaz. I want to follow God. What a beautiful prophecy that this turns out to be. So you can see these two signs in Isaiah 7. The first is a wonderful sign of a coming Messiah, born of a virgin, whose name will be Emmanuel. The second sign was for an unbelieving king concerning the invasion of Assyria that in 722 wipes out Israel, wipes out the northern tribes. But yet, there's comfort because this little one, this little one will be part of a remnant that shall return Most people perish like King Ahaz. Most people reject God. Only eight of them got on an ark. After 120 years of a man preaching repentance and deliverance in God, eight people get on an ark. Millions die. Most people reject it. But not all. And this is why we preach the word of God, because he always has a remnant. He always has people that he has designated, called for the foundations of the world to come. We don't know who they are. They don't have ease for elect on their head. We preach the gospel. We live the gospel because God is saving. And we're prepared to come alongside of him and we give the message there was a baby born of a virgin. He came from heaven, the blessing from heaven. Here he met, that, that blessing came to earth where he cleansed our sins right at the conduit in the fuller's field. That was the cross. That's the cross. And that's where we put our faith in it. The conduit and the cleansing come together and our sins are forgiven. Well, let me just quickly finish with just a few theological thoughts. Number four, must we believe in the virgin conception and birth? People ask me that all the time. Well, let me give you a couple of quick thoughts. The integrity of the gospel is at stake based on the truth of the virgin birth. What kind of gospel do you have if you cannot assure that Jesus was untainted by depravity? You can go, well, you know, you can believe in him, but we're just hoping we've got our fingers crossed that, you know, Adam's blood didn't get into him. Man, you can't share the gospel without the virgin birth. Virgin conception is part of who we are. It's what we share. The scriptures is the ultimate authority of God himself. And we, we, we understand that. God himself is the authority of scriptures. And this is what he said. He said that most high will overshadow her. The spirit of God will come upon her. And she will be with child. And for this reason, for that reason, the Bible says, he shall be called what? Holy. 
absent of sin. Look, virgin birth is in our doctrinal statement. Go read it online. It, you have to believe in the doctrine of the virgin conception and birth because salvation rides on it too. The virgin birth proves the eternal existence of the Son of God before the miraculous conception in Mary's womb. The only thing that was not pre-existing was the humanity of Jesus. Jesus added humanity, but he always existed. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold the glory and grace, right, of God. He came. He's been preexistent. And so he had to be, he had to become fully God and fully man. One person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, all collectively working together in sinless perfection to be our Savior. Deity of God, that he was sinless, Man, so he could represent us and die on a cross. Oh, my goodness. Virgin birth is so important to what we believe. Isaiah 9, 6 says, Unto us a child is born. There's his flesh. Unto us a son was given, not born, given from God. Back to Psalms 2 there. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, uh, third, Messiah has to be a virgin conception in order to guarantee his sinlessness. All descendants of Adam are sinners. Romans 5, 12. If he's a product of Adam, we're dead. <laughs> Eternally dead. He had to be separate from that. And though I'm sure Joseph was a great human father, he was not the father of Jesus. Praise God. And I'm so grateful for Joseph. He was a godly man and a kind man, it seems. But he wasn't, he wasn't the biological father of Jesus because Jesus was separate from man so he could be our redemptive one. Fourth, the virgin birth launched his earthly ministry. I thought long and hard about this. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, his life was sinless. His miracles were perfect. His truth was freeing. His sacrifice was substitutional. And his resurrection was uh, our assurance. You take that at all with man's sin, none of that happens. I mean, I look at his life and study his life. You've heard me preach his life. I just finished Mark. We can be assured all those things are true because of the virgin birth. This is how powerful the virgin conception and birth is to us. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus must be part of the Bible-believing Christian's confession. That's why we put it in our doctrinal statement. Without it, we will have no assurance that our sins are forgiven. And think about this. 1 John chapter 4 says the Antichrist, the Antichrist is against the virgin birth. And then 1 Timothy 3.16 records what we believe, some of the confessions of the early church. One of the things they would stand up and say, he was manifested in flesh. He, pre-existing one, dressed himself in flesh. This is part of our confession. The virgin birth is key to our salvation. Isn't this beautiful? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Um, Oh, I could talk about your son all day long. Um, what a joy to think about this. And Lord, here in this text in Isaiah 7, just steeped in filth and, and godless kings and nations, all serving self, ready to kill and be killed. And here in the middle of that, the word of God comes. Where the blessings of heaven meet cleansing, regeneration, washing away of sins, there's the message given. And that message is Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem us and make us adopted children of God. That's Christmas. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction?
Listen to this. Something I just wrote this morning, but come out of the sermon. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, may your light and glory continue to shine upon us and cause us to constantly remember the great work you have done. Cause us to see and believe that you sent your Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that you may redeem us and claim us as your children. May we worship in truth this season that blessing flowed from heaven, cleansed our souls as we celebrate Christmas. Amen.